This is a Federal News Network podcast. Many of us work in it. Many more visit it. Millions pass through it. Yet we often forget that the National Capital Region is filled with resources with historical and cultural importance. That's why there's a National Capital Planning Commission. And here with a review of of some of its recent work, the NCPC Executive Director, Marcel Acosta. Mr. Acosta, good to have you on. Thank you so much, Tom, and thank you for the opportunity to discuss the National Capital Planning Commission and our activities. I don't think people realize how much is going on with the NCPC, but I wanted to begin with a couple of specific projects, and then we'll kind of branch out to some broader issues. But you are involved with a new headquarters for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And what's the commission's role in that particular project? Well, that's a very uh, great point to bring up. Um, One of the things that we do as a commission is approve and review federal projects that go out to federal labs. So in this case, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Headquarters was a project that we looked at uh, last year. And this is a very important uh, agency for the federal government. They have a very important mission that all of us want to ensure happens. One of the biggest issues is that it is on a historic campus. So one of the questions that our commission asks is how well does this project and development and its design integrate with the fabric of this historic campus? This is in fact the National Historic Landmark where the new headquarters is situated. It is the highest level of landmark status that you can achieve. So what we do with the agency and working with the General Services Administration, which acts as their agent, in this case, as the developer of the project, and also with Department of Homeland Security, which CISA is a part of, uh, we work with them very closely to make sure that the building materials, its location on the campus, the size of it, the height of it, all work well within this historic campus. So it goes through a, a number of different reviews And we work very closely with them to make sure that they meet their mission requirements, uh, but also they do the best they can in terms of integrating themselves into this campus. So, you know, we've worked very hard, uh, very closely with these agencies to ensure that this happens. And I think at the end of the day, it's a win-win. The the people who work in this new headquarters building will have a beautiful facility. And it's also something that we could all be proud of in terms of a new agency headquarters. Yeah, the pictures in your annual report show a stunning building that does seem to be kind of low-lying because it's at the St. Elizabeth's campus and there's a historic Civil War cemetery there and so on. I guess if they wanted to put up a 50-story glass and steel tower, that probably wouldn't cut it for the national capital. Uh, that is absolutely correct. And I, I think they're very aware of um, their their role in terms of uh, being a good neighbor on this campus. So again, um, they, they, they looked at uh, what their program uh, needs are and they had determined that they could fit their program in this uh, more low scale building uh, on the campus. And again, we, we worked with them very closely to ensure that uh, that it did fit into this campus quite well and also meet their mission needs. So that, you know, I, I think you raised a good point. This is situated on a hill, basically adjacent to Washington, D.C. Um, and, and, you know, you can see it from a, a variety of standpoints uh, as you're kind of moving throughout the region. So we wanted to make sure that it, it did a good job of respecting its site and location sure. and kind of the historic nation, nature of the campus. And if they want to beam down on the Russian embassy, they'll have to find some other location to do it from, I guess. And the other surprise that I saw in the report, I didn't realize this, that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing is moving out of 14th Street, where it's been since 
forever. I mean, as a child, I remember visiting it and, and maybe getting a crisp new $2 bill to another county. Yes, uh, the uh, Bureau of Engraving and Printing is moving to Prince George's County, and the, their current location, as you said, is in downtown D.C. Uh, part of it is that they needed a new facility to, to kind of meet the needs of the 21st century. You know, it was basically older technology in the building, uh, and they needed a new currency production plant. It's basically a manufacturing plant uh, where they make coins and other currency uh, in a location that uh, that had the new machinery, uh, had the state-of-the-art technology that would ensure that they could stay in business uh, for, you know, for the next, you know, over the series of the next decade. So they are moving out to Prince George's County at uh, actually at the Beltsville Agriculture Campus, uh, which is part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, and so we're working very closely with them again to ensure that number one, it uh, kind of respects the, the more rural nature uh, of the campus, uh, that there is good accessibility uh, for a transportation standpoint. Uh, and also, you know, it, it does it and it's able to perform its mission the best way that it could. Plus, it has to accommodate visitors because that's a popular spot. Yes. Uh, and that's one of the things they're still going through the process of review right now. So uh, that's one of the things that we'll be looking at uh, in successive reviews uh, this upcoming year. Yes, but it also has that function, too. We're speaking with Marcel Acosta. He's executive director of the National Capital Planning Commission. Interesting. And I guess the implication, too, is that the national capital area is much more than the central core of Washington, D.C., then, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think most of us tend to think of the mall, uh, the federal headquarters, uh, the White House, the Capitol being uh, just uh, where most of the federal activity occurs, but we do see a lot of uh, activity out of the region. I think you just raised the uh, Bureau of Engraving and Printing Facility, but there are military installations such as Fort Belvoir, uh, some of our most important federal scientific campuses like the National Institutes of Health are in Montgomery County. Uh, so we have a number of very important mission critical federal agencies that are situated both in Virginia and in Maryland that all comprise the National Capital Region. So our agency looks and reviews projects, and not only in Washington, D.C., and you tend to think of the Smithsonian Museums, for instance, or new memorials as things that the National Capital Plan Planning Commission reviews. Uh, but we do review a number of very important federal installations and facilities throughout this region. And just one more detail I wanted to ask you about, and that is the Pennsylvania Avenue initiative bringing us back downtown here. Yes, uh, that is something that we're very excited about. Uh, we have been working very closely with the District of Columbia, as well as uh, our federal stakeholders, including the National Park Service and the General Services Administration, on ways of kind of looking at ways of revitalizing Pennsylvania Avenue, which is one of the country's most symbolic spaces and one of its most important streets. And we tend to think of it as a place where we have a, an inauguration every four years. Uh, but it's so much more than that. And uh, to to a great extent, uh, people should be looking at the street the same way they look at the National Mall, uh, that we this is a place where we can stage significant events. Uh, we do see rallies and protests and marches today, uh, but it could also be a place where we celebrate uh, what's important to our country uh, on the street. And it's actually in a process of change. Over time, it's become uh, less important in terms of our transportation network. As a, as a street, but uh, we see it more as a venue for these very important activities to occur. So I think that's its future. It's going to not only just be a street, but a place where you're going to see much more activity occur uh, in terms of large events, 
Um, you're also going to see it become much more of a public space. Uh, we're going to start thinking of it more in terms of a, uh, a major park, a major plaza in our nation's capital, as opposed to a street that carries cars. And so I think uh, as the downtown evolves and changes over time, I think uh, Pennsylvania Avenue is going to play a more significant role in terms of uh, what downtown means in terms of visitors and tourists and to our local population. Do you know, at one time on Pennsylvania Avenue, there was a shoe repair shop that you could walk in and get your shoes repaired right on the spot. I think it's probably been 40 years since that place is there. And, you know, so that's not old D.C. anymore, is it, with, you know, Shoals Cafeteria and shoe repair shops right on Pennsylvania Avenue? You'll still see a little bit of that on Pennsylvania Avenue because there's always a need to kind of serve the day-to-day population uh, that's there. But uh, I think the the larger issue for P- Pennsylvania Avenue is that uh, how does it fit into the life of the city and that we could do much more to make it an engaging place and a destination for not only the nation as a whole, but for people who live and work in the national capital region. And so festivals, large celebratory events, uh, things that we care about the, about as a nation are things that uh, we could consider being staged uh, on this very important, beautiful place. And so uh, it is our hope that we see a transformation of this place from a street uh, to a public space that we could be very proud of. All the more important for the city to get that intersection at New York Avenue, Florida Avenue, and First Street Northeast fixed because it's going to probably get more traffic even than it gets now. You didn't have any role in that particular project, did you? Not a direct role in that, but I I think uh, one of the things that the city does every day is look at kind of what the future is in terms of uh, traffic congestion and where to make uh, strategic improvements to our infrastructure and our street grid and Uh, That obviously is a place, regardless of Pennsylvania Avenue, that needs uh, a lot of attention. I wanted to ask you about the general process for the Planning Commission, the National Capital Planning Commission. When you have a project somewhere, whether it's Prince George's County or in the core of D.C., besides the federal agency involved and the commission, a lot of people can weigh in, can't they, to say, well, I want this walkway this way, or I want that sight line that way. And how do you get anything done? Because this is a city where everybody feels they can weigh in, and they're not shy about going to court if they don't like what they get. That's a very good point. I think one of the great things about working at the National Capital Planning Commission is that you have the opportunity to engage with the public and talk about how you know a particular project or plan might affect their community. And so, you know, some of our uh, most important federal agencies are hosted in neighborhoods. Uh, for instance, uh, we talked a bit about the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, that is in the neighborhood of Anacostia on the east side of Washington, D.C. So it is very important that people have the opportunity to speak up, uh, talk about any issues that might come up uh, with respect from uh, ranging from traffic and parking uh, to environmental impacts, uh, historic preservation issues, things that they might care about. And, you know, it, to a great extent, our process, because it is iterative, uh, that people come in at a very, very early stage, uh, the applicant, to show us kind of what they're thinking about. The public has an opportunity to review that and comment on that. And over time, that project gets better uh, and that, because it incorporates input from the public and from other federal agencies and from the city that hosts that particular installation or federal uh, agency, and that over time, all those issues are addressed. And so, yeah, it does take 
time and sometimes they seem overwhelming, but at the end of the day, we're able to resolve even the most contentious issues uh, that might be there. But I think part of it is that we are open to that sort of conversation uh, with the public. And I think to a great extent over the hundred years of uh, the our agency being around, uh, I think we've developed a lot of credibility and respect from the community and from the local jurisdictions in terms of ensuring that their issues are addressed. And sometimes after something controversial or difficult is finally installed, I'm thinking of the World War II memorial. A couple of years later, people can't imagine life without it. It's like it's always been there in some ways. And, and even so, there is always constant improvement, and you've got something being installed soon in, the, in that particular circle that's going to improve it a little bit. Yes, I think you're uh, speaking about the National Prayer Plaque, uh, yes. which was uh, President Roosevelt's uh, prayer uh, right before the invasion of Normandy. And so over time, many of, um, not, and you can look at it in terms of memorials, but buildings change and their missions change uh, over time. So, uh, you know, we're always looking at making adjustments and modifications, sometimes to memorials, more often in terms of buildings and campuses. That's what planning is about. It's about managing change and ensuring that we do the right thing that best meets the needs of the agency involved, but also meets the needs of the greater public. And so uh, that's what planners do as part of our profession is that, that we ensure that that happens in the best way possible. And looking at some of the priorities for the commission as listed in the latest report too, you mentioned the uh, issue of equity, diversity, and so forth. How does that come to bear on, on these public spaces and what are you planning in that regard? One of the most exciting things that the National Capital Planning Commission, as well as our partners, the Trust for uh, the National Mall and the National Park Service, is a new initiative called Beyond Granite. In Washington, D.C., on the mall, and then in our monumental core of the city, uh, we do tell stories about our history, about what's important to this nation in terms of events, and we do that in terms of memorials and monuments. It is very difficult. It is a very long process to get a permanent memorial installed in Washington, D.C., and there are millions and millions of different stories that could be told. And so what we want to do is to allow that opportunity to occur perhaps more on a temporary basis, uh, but we want to offer the opportunity for uh, sponsors, the public, uh, people in various communities to tell these stories and, and to make sure that they're represented in our nation's capital. So what we are looking at in terms of uh, over the next two and a half years is a, a demonstration program where we would install eight to 10 temporary commemorative works. Uh, they could be memorials, monuments, public art, uh, that tell different stories about our nation. And we're inviting the public and different uh, groups out there to perhaps send us a proposal. And we will go through a process to illustrate that maybe over a six month period, you can also tell your story in the Capitol. And that you know, over time, we will be able to tell even more stories in that fashion. Because to a great extent, uh, we'll run out of land for permanent memorials. And I think, uh, again, the demand sure. is much greater the supply that's out there in terms of land. So uh, this will give us an opportunity uh, to do to do that and, and have more representation and more equity in that storytelling uh, in terms of the public. We're speaking with Marcel Acosta. He's executive director of the National Capital Planning Commission. And sometimes wild cards might come along that 
are really not initiated by the commission. And I'm thinking of, do you have your antenna out, at, at least at this point, for what might happen if you listen to all the talk about the relocation once again of the football team for Washington, the now called the Commanders. And I think most fans would like to see it back in D.C., but that that would probably invoke the commission as well, wouldn't it? If it went on federal land, if for, perhaps if it was rebuilt at the uh, current site of RFK Stadium, since that is still a National Park Service, so it's still under the jurisdiction of the National Park Service. But if it goes onto private property in Virginia or Maryland or even on private property in the district, it is very unlikely because our jurisdiction is only on federal land that we that our commission would have a role in that review of a new stadium. So a little bit early to start thinking about it in detail, but somehow I have a feeling there would be a lot of parties involved in, in uh, having a say in what happens there. Almost certainly, yes. I, I think there's a great amount of interest out there in terms of where the uh, new where the football team may go in the future. So, uh, but it is still very early in the process. All right. Anything else we should know about what you guys are thinking about? Because again, this is a place where people live, work, impinge. It's internationally a destination, and so. It's critically important what the commission decides and helps decide. Yes, I, I think you raised a very uh, good point. I, I think right now, uh, because of the pandemic, uh, we may see big changes in terms of how the federal workforce acts uh, in terms of whether we go back to work full time in our offices. Is there going to be a hybrid work environment? Are most of us going to be teleworking? And I think one of the big questions, and this may be a once in a generation sort of question is that how is this going to profoundly impact our region? It may impact the way we move uh, throughout the region in terms of what is its impact on mass mass transit. Um, If we are teleworking, uh, if the federal workforce is teleworking downtown, what does it mean to uh, the livelihood of downtown DC, for instance? So I think there are a great number of questions out there that we're looking at uh, with our uh, sister federal agencies as well as our as well as the local jurisdictions and i think that will be the big planning question uh, that all of us will be addressing over the coming years and this doesn't only deal with the federal workforce but kind of the workforce in general uh, and it's going to be profound i think and so that's one of the big things that uh, all of us have been thinking through i also believe you mentioned our annual report and we invite the public to take a look at our 2021 national capital planning commission uh, year in review. And you can find that on our website. And we hope you take a look. And we'll link it at our website when we post this interview. Marcella Costa is executive director of the National Capital Planning Commission. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember 
looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.